This is Reverse Deception Radio on the Veritas Radio Network, Crusade Channel. Secret Service people on the ground around Dilly Plaza that afternoon. They were told they were not needed. Quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. Memorandum. Special Agent in Charge, Houston. From Special Agent Graham Kitchell. Date, 11-22-63. Subject, unknown subject. Assassination of President John F. Kennedy. At 1.45 p.m., Mr. George H.W. Bush... President of the Zapata Offshore Drilling Company, Houston, Texas, residents such and such, furnished the following information to writer by long-distance telephone call from Tyler, Texas. Bush stated that he wanted to be kept confidential, but wanted to furnish hearsay that he recalled hearing in recent weeks the day and source unknown. He stated that one James Parrott had been talking of killing the president when he comes to Houston. Bush stated that Parrott is possibly a student at the University of Houston and is active in political matters in the area. He stated that he felt Mrs. Fawley or Arlene Smith of the Harris County Republican Party headquarters would be able to furnish additional information regarding the identity of Parrott. Bush stated that he was proceeding to Dallas, Texas, would remain in the Sheridan Dallas Hotel and return to his residence on 11-23-63. Gave his office telephone number. So at exactly 1.45 p.m., George Bush calls the FBI. Why did he call the FBI? Because he said someone, James Parrott, was looking to kill the president. At 1.45, on 11.22.63, many things were happening. The president had been shot at 12.30 and died at 1 p.m. Officer Tippett had already been shot by Oswald. Oswald was identified in the theater at 1.30, 15 minutes before the future president made his phone call. And... The future president made his phone call exactly at the same time that the FBI and Dallas police surrounded and subdued Lee Harvey Oswald. That, my friends, is what you call a coincidence. Gentlemen, when two separate events occur simultaneously pertaining to the same object of inquiry, we must always pay strict attention. But that's okay. Still not enough evidence for you? No problem. Date, November 22nd, 1963, to the Director, Bureau of Intelligence and Research at the Department of State, from J. Edgar Hoover, Director, FBI. Subject, assassination of President Kennedy. Our Miami, Florida office advised that the Office of Coordination of Cuban Affairs in Miami 
advised that the Department of State feels some misguided anti-Castro group might capitalize on the present situation and undertake an unauthorized raid against Cuba, believing that the assassination of President John F. Kennedy might herald the change in U.S. policy, which is not true. Our sources and informants familiar with the Cuban matter in, my, in the Miami area advise that the general feelings of the anti-Castro Cuban community is one of stunned disbelief, and even among those who did not entirely agree with the president's policy concerning Cuba, the feeling is that the president's death represents a great loss not only to the U.S., but also to all of Latin America. These sources know of no plans for unauthorized actions against Cuba. An informant who has been furnished, who has furnished reliable information in the past and who is close to a small pro-Castro group in Miami has advised that these individuals are afraid that the assassination of the president may result in strong repercussive measures being taken against them, although pro-Castro in their feelings regret the assassination. The substance of the following information was orally furnished by George Bush of the Central Intelligence Agency. Hey, look at that, the missing evidence in the Kellner case. My God, he was innocent. He went to the chair two years ago, Frank. And Captain such-and-such of the Defense Intelligence Agency on November 23rd, 1961 to Mr. Forsyth of this bureau. 1961. George Bush, as I said before, had been working for the CIA for a long time before Kennedy was assassinated and is implicated here as a co-conspirator in the murder by J. Edgar Hoover himself. In the heat of the investigative pursuit, the shortest distance between two points is not necessarily a straight line. But what was Pappy Bush up to in those days? Well, he was the president of the Zapata Oil Company. Zapata Oil Company stood up 1953, 1954, I think, somewhere right in there, and immediately started to focus their drilling efforts where? In the Caribbean. <laughs> Say it isn't so. Say it isn't so. Ladies and gentlemen, there is no such thing as a coincidence in investigative work. One of their drilling wells was 40 miles north of Isabella, Cuba, near the island of Quesal. That is close enough. That is close enough. Remember, the keys are 90 miles. If you can get something a lot closer, you spy on those guys all day, right? Right? I mean, come on. This is, again, we talk about something being complex, complicated, uh, difficult to understand. And then you have 
simple to understand. This is pretty obvious. And much like many of our El Presidente's businesses, this one nearly went belly under until he got a bailout of sorts. Not a definitive bailout. It was it's a little bit different, but they were saved by the bell. Then they finally got bought out after they had they, they didn't even turn a profit, I think, for the last five or six years that they were in business. Okay? This is this is what we call this is what we call a front company. This is something that is obviously not what it seems. These guys obviously can't drill stinking oil. But I digress. Folks, I told you we had proof here. If anybody wants a copy of the FBI memo, please, gscarp12 at hotmail.com. Hit me up on Twitter, at gscarp12. I will send you a copy of the FBI memo signed by J. Edgar Hoover himself, implicating George Bush as a co-conspirator in the JFK assassination. And I'll send you a copy of the CIA report where they admit the fact that they were working with Lee Harvey Oswald and they had an operation set up to go that was even called Oswald. Doesn't get any simpler than this, folks. I mean, this is this is basic research 101. It's taken me a long time to put a bunch of stuff together. And, you know, please understand that we don't want to give you information that is incorrect, that that is not accurate. By doing something like that, we bring discredit to ourselves and it shows low morals and a lack of integrity. Now, let's go back to the memo from the FBI. for, And I'll send you this one, too. The one where George Bush called in. I'll send you a copy of this one, too. This is, this is just good stuff, folks. This memo where he implicates a guy named Parrot. Well, who was Parrot? Parrot was... Well, he was a guy who worked for Bush. He did painting for Bush. Bush knew the guy. And he's throwing some dude under the bus like that. Amazing. Just amazing. This guy shows up in the uh, Zapata or the Bush family legacy employment records. He's there, folks. That's why the people at the Republican Party knew who he was. <laughs> Again, you know, it, sometimes you, you have to read a little bit into what you have. For example, the, the, I mean, the memo that came out by Bush, I mean, you know, the timing of it. The timing of it. I mean, it showed he was obviously working that Friday. Right? There's no doubt about it, because he called the FBI. He wasn't off. And what was he doing? He was going up to Dallas because three days earlier, in the Dallas Star, it announced the fact that Bush was going to be a speaker at and the Association of Oil Drillers, American Association of Oil, Drill, Oil Well Drilling. He was going to speak there. And then he was going to fly back home. So his job at Zapata required him to go to Dallas on the very day that JFK was shot. And that, my friends, is not a coincidence because George Bush, for 30 plus years, said he could not 
remember what he was doing the day JFK was shot. He could not remember what happened that day. He didn't know where he was. He didn't know what he was doing. Quick test. Where was everybody on 9-11? I'll give you some time to think about where you might have been. Because 9-11 is trivial, comparatively speaking, to when JFK was shot. Not in the loss of life. That's obvious. But as far as the news media went, as far as the reach went, as far as the way it spread and the way it affected people all over the world. Bush was in Dallas. James Parrott was a sign painter who worked for Bush for a long time. The phone call to the FBI is not a random phone call. It is a signal. It lets somebody somewhere know something has been done, hasn't been done, or is in motion. If you're just joining us, this is Greg Carpenter of the Reverse Deception Show on the Veritas Radio Network Crusade Channel. We're digging in to the JFK murder and who was involved and who are the real people who killed JFK. Not the hearsay, not the results of the Warren Commission. Who are the real people? And if you like what you're hearing and you want the easiest, most convenient way to listen to the Veritas Radio Network, then download our apps in the Windows Phone App Store, the iTunes Store for iPhone and iPad, and the Google Play Store for Android devices. The app is just $1.99 and gives you fingertip access to the Crusade Channel's live stream, the Crusade Channel's host bios, showtimes, Twitter, and Facebook feeds. Crusade Channel Cafe, and much, much more. So download our app today, and please consider rating them too. Our smartphone app delivers the Crusade Channel anywhere mobile devices are. The Veritas Radio Network app, mobile radio the way it should be. I have one correction to make, folks. I misspoke before. When I spoke of the Dallas Star, I meant the Dallas Morning News. Page 20, Section 1 is where it announces George Bush as a speaker. And if you want that, I can send that to you too. GSCARP12 at Hotmail.com or at GSCARP12 on the Twitter. You can also find me on Facebook. I'm out there, Gregory Carpenter. So a few shows ago, we had on retired special agent in charge Steve Bongart from the FBI talked about his victimology methodology and how you assess a crime scene, and how you focus from the victim to identify who committed the crime. And one of the things we have to consider is who benefits. That's always considered a very strong motive. Who's going to benefit by the crime being committed? Think on that for a while. I'm sure everyone here can come up with a short list. So let's throw another piece of information in there. 
no one can really understand the connections between all of the moving parts in the JFK assassination unless they consider Mr. Winston Scott. Winston Scott is another piece to the puzzle. He joined the FBI in 1941 and was assigned to the cryptography division. He had a Ph.D. in algebra from the University of Michigan. Smart guy. He was sent to spy on the German population in Pittsburgh, and in February 1943, he was loaned to the U.S. Embassy in Cuba. After returning to D.C., he was recruited by the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, the predecessor to the CIA. He was the first chief of station for the CIA in London in 1947. In 1950, he became the head of the Western European Division of the Office of Special Operations, overseeing espionage in Western Europe. So he was moving up very quickly. And then in 1955, he asked for a transfer to Mexico City. How interesting. Out of nowhere, he had been working Europe the whole time. And he worked a little bit with Cuba, but he wanted to transfer to Mexico City. And he became chief of station there in 1956. So he became a virtual proconsul, or the real power behind the throne would be how you translate that. And in December 1958, he launched Operation L.I. Tempo, recruiting agents and collaborators and then gained three Mexican presidents on the CIA payroll. If you need that one, I'll send that to you too. GSCARP12 at hotmail.com. He remained in Mexico until he retired in 1969, and that included when Lee Harvey Oswald visited the Cuban and Soviet embassies in Mexico between September 27th and October 2nd in 1963. Now, there were several other things that happened during that time period that were very substantial, and we can go into them another time, but basically he was pushed into retirement. Pushed into retirement. Somebody this outstanding, this outspoken, and this much of a pivotal player was forced into retirements. See, a couple years after leaving the CIA in 1971, he was preparing a book with his memoirs and discussed them with John Horton, the new Mexico station chief. Scott died in April 1971, two days before a meeting with the CIA director Richard Helms. Remember him? It was to discuss the contents of his memoirs. No autopsy was performed. It was suggested he had suffered a heart attack. And he passed away at the ripe old age of 51. Had a heart attack. 51. Could be a heart attack. A couple shows ago, we talked about the Church Commission and the testimony of the chief scientist of the CIA saying that they had a dart that could be shot into someone that would make it look like they had a heart attack and there was no trace that could be found. None whatsoever. There's no such thing as a coincidence, folk. 
no such thing as a coincidence. Because after he died, the CIA seized all of his personal papers, including audio tape, the audio tape recordings of Lee Harvey Oswald and the manuscript of his memos, which he had intended to publish. Now, what was the tape of Lee Harvey Oswald? Those were the tapes of him going to Mexico to speak with the Cuban and Soviet embassies. The ones that the CIA said never happened. And the ones that the FBI came back and later said never happened. But this guy had a copy of the tapes. One of the things that I would ask would be, first of all, this is probably something that's classified secret, top secret, or whatever. But this guy's got a copy of these tapes sitting at his house. Really? Did he just walk out with classified information like that? Oh, wait, no, Hillary did it too. I'm sorry. Uh, oh, and so did Colin Powell. And so, you know what? I believe they've all done it. Wow. Pretty sad, right? Pretty sad. You're lowering the food chain. You get beat over your head. You get thrown in prison. If you release one tidbit of classified information, even by accident. And these guys just blatantly break the law. Uh, But anyway, strangely enough, the manuscript was returned to his son in the 87, 88, somewhere in there. And the interesting part of it was that everything from 1947 on was completely removed from the manuscript. And some of the missing chapters were released through a lawsuit later on, but it wasn't everything. It it was small bits and pieces here and there. Another victim of the military-industrial complex and the U.S. intelligence machine. It will not be stopped. Hang on to your hat and watch it go, folks, because that's all you're going to be able to have a chance to do. I wanted to get into this lawsuit filed by Jefferson Morley, but we'll do that in the second segment because it's intense and it's a lot. And you want to see the pieces of the puzzle come together, folks? Segment two. Here we go. Remember, if you missed any of this segment or any of my previous shows, they're all available for streaming and download at VeritasRadioNetwork.com. You'll need a Founders Pass membership to gain access to those downloads for as little as 23 cents per day. Just click on the Join button at the top of any page. This is the Reverse Deception Show on the Crusade Channel, part of the Veritas Radio Network, radio the way it should be. Round up the usual suspects. They were going to make me a major for this. And I wasn't even in that army anymore. And as long as my heart will beat, sweet lover will always meet. Here in my deep And as long as my heart will beat, sweet lover will We're 
We're giving you five minutes to gather the Pentagon-sized pile of scales that's fallen from your eyes. Reverse deception. We'll be right back on the Veritas Radio Network's Crusade. <laughs> 